Declaration of Independence. Now, this is a subject that only really recently became into controversy. Uh, as founded, the, the country and the Declaration, as an arbiter of, the, of our country's will at its inception, uh, were universally agreed to be a document that reflected a larger will against institutionalized slavery. And the best way to illustrate this, I believe, is to kind of provide two different angles. So today I'm going to read a few select quotes from uh, individuals who understood that the Declaration was a tool against slavery, and also from its detractors. Now it's interesting uh, to note uh, with that is early on uh, it was... Well, it was argued against uh, by those who were most uh, in favor of slavery because they viewed it as it justly was. It was an obstruction. Now, uh, mentioned in episode one, uh, slavery was actually impressed onto the uh, British colonies in North America as well as other areas. And he actively uh, impeded attempts early in the life of the nation before it was the United States, uh, to control and restrict slavery. Now, there was a passage of the Declaration of Independence authored by Thomas Jefferson uh, that was unfortunately struck out uh, final, from the final draft. Uh, there was some concerns as far as it alienating uh, British loyalists. Uh, it was pretty well understood that there would be a war uh, as a result of the Declaration and as a result of declaring independence from Britain. And so there was a very real and practical concern militarily uh, with those remnants of the population in the colonies uh, that were still loyal to Britain, uh, being incited to act alongside with Britain. Uh, and also just uh, Britain was very well received on the national stage because of their power and influence. Uh, having just defeated the French uh, they essentially established themselves at that point in history as the global superpower. However, I think uh, for just a brief moment here, I'm going to read this uh, omitted passage, and I will let you decide uh, why it is that you think it was struck out. It reads, quote, He, meaning the king, has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in the transportation thither. Determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold, he has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or to restrain this execrable commerce." And that this assemblage of horrors might want no fact of distinguished die, he is now exciting those very people to rise in arms among us, and to purchase that liberty of which he has deprived them, and murdering the people upon whom he also obtruded them, thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people, with crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. So that's but pretty incendiary, uh, coming from Mr. Jefferson. Uh, which in a later episode we'll discover uh, just exactly how adamantly opposed he was to slavery, uh, despite 
owning slaves himself, having inherited them at a very young age. But the, uh, of course, this passage was struck out, as I mentioned earlier, uh, but it does also kind of reflect and support uh, some of the assertions I made in episode one, uh, that slavery was impressed in the colonies, uh, and also uh, hints at the destabilizing effect that slavery had, uh, although Britain had a economic interest in the perpetuation of slavery. Uh, it was mentioned as much that one of the other points was intentionally destabilizing uh, those communities and reducing the probability of rebellion. Obviously, I didn't work out uh, as planned. So after the uh, declaration was, was signed and the country officially founded, and the concept of American exceptionalism thus born from the Declaration of Independence uh, and the ideas that it encapsulated. It was uh, used in the f future legal decisions. Uh, it was used in uh, future enactments of law. Uh, and it became the most cited reference for uh, petitions by abolitionists. Um, it was cited in numerous court decisions that transformed the political landscape of the time. Uh, all of these things, of course, reject the notion that it approved of slavery. Now, Dr. Larry Yarn from Hillsdale College, uh, in one of his many wonderful podcasts that he has with Hugh Hewitt, uh, he, he touched briefly on why it is that slavery wasn't addressed specifically. And he writes, or says rather, uh, that the founders were committed to... Uh, not to interfere with slavery in the states because the federal government had no power to do so through the constitution much as they hated slavery and instead they thought that another way which was to forbid it to grow to go into any one of the new territories would be the way to place it in the course of its ultimate extinction and to this this idea that uh, dr arn presents is an extension of how the declaration was meant to be utilized uh, one of the more interesting kind of strange notions that uh, can be applied to the Declaration and the Constitution is that somehow, by these men signing this paper, I suppose some great theatrical ripple should have went across all the colonies and just implemented automatically. I think this kind of comes from uh, modern society's uh, real fixation on thinking that government just kind of wields this magic power. Uh, the Declaration, and like the Constitution, which we'll address later, were recognitions of certain, what they consider to be immortal, self-evident truths, uh, in defiance of many emergent theories later on, including communism, Marxism, and progressivism. It was not a document that transformed the country. It was a recognition of principles that, f that the country should be founded upon, and this strive to pursue. And again, this was something that was very well understood at the time. Uh, really, the, the real opposition uh, to the founding uh, did not come, uh, except for those who approved of slavery, at least early in life. And it was not lost on later abolitionists as well. Uh, if you examine Frederick Douglass, uh, in just one of his many speeches, uh, he refers to the founders as peacemen who preferred revolution to peaceful submission to bondage. 
They believed in order, but not in the order of tyranny. And with them, nothing was settled that was not right. With them, justice, liberty, and humanity were final, not slavery and oppression. Now, Samuel Hopkins was a what would be considered at the time to be a radical abolitionist. And even he, uh, despite believing that the federal government should just you know, wave that wand and declare all of the, the millions of slaves free, uh, he recognized the language and the sentiment of the Declaration and its application in the anti-slavery movement. Uh, he wrote, and I quote, It was repeatedly declared in Congress as the language and sentiment of all these states and by other public bodies of men that all men are born equally free and independent and have certain natural, inherent, and unalienable rights, among which are the defending and enjoying life and liberty, acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. By the immutable laws of nature, all men are entitled to life and liberty. He goes on to specify how this applies to slavery. He says, The Africans and the blacks in servitude among us were really as much included in these assertions as ourselves, and their right, unalienable right to liberty, and to procure and possess property, is as much asserted as ours, if they be men. Now, a critical distinction there comes at the very end, and that's the larger discussion, as that's if they, slaves were classified at the time as property, hence chattel. And that, that observation made by Samuel Hopkins would come on to frame the ideological conflict in the near future, uh, and had, <laughs> actually even at the uh, Philadelphia Convention, uh, already began to worm its way into the conversation. How can you consider slaves property and treat them as much in certain fashions, but then treat them as humans and others? You know, try them for murder, for example. Uh, you know, you don't accuse a cow of running away or, you know, killing his master. And this observa these observations continued uh, up through and, and, of course, to the modern day, but, uh, you know, the most legendary civil rights figure of the time uh, is especially in the 1960s, Martin Luther King, uh, he acknowledged in his famous I Have a Dream speech the validity of the Declaration of Independence and its inherent, uh, well, Declaration of Human Equality. Uh, he says, and I quote, It wouldn't take us long to discover the substance of that dream. It is found in those majestic words of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their God-creator with certain able rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The first saying we notice in this dream is an amazing universalism. It doesn't say some men, it says all men. It doesn't say all white men, it says all men, which includes black men. Now, M.O.K. has uh, an, a bit of intrigue around himself, of course, uh, which will be the subject of a future podcast. But in this instance, he's, again, just reflecting what was common marketplace knowledge at the time. Now, the first detractors against the Declaration actually came in the form of those who decried it for being opposed to slavery. And coincidentally, uh, also derided Thomas Jefferson for daring to author it, and also for his 1787 Northwest Ordinance that restricted 
uh, through the power of the federal government and Congress, uh, the expansion of slavery into new territories. So John C. Calhoun was uh, one of the most famous, what's called Democrat fire eaters, and they were a group of just uh, fanatically pro-slavery uh, Democrat Party founders um, whose philosophy of his namesake Calhounism uh, had many elements that were derived from left Hegelianism. So we start to see a bit of a German philosophical influx into the Democratic Party very early into his life. Now, he, um, when he addressed the Declaration, he ins- or, uh, insisted that its whole concept of natural equality was, and I quote, a proposition which, or- which originated in a hypothetical truism, but which is now expressed and is now understood is the most false and dangerous of all political errors. Any assertion that all men are created equal, the form of, of expression, though less dangerous, is not less erroneous. Now, it's interesting about this, in, his, in the entirety of his speech, what he's trying to do is actually attack the Declaration uh, by falsely uh, attributing what that phrase means. Okay, so he's creating a straw man here, although he does so very articulately. Uh, John C. Calhoun, uh, despite being you know, the Antichrist of the Antebellum era, uh, he was nothing if not a talented orator. So what he's trying to say here is, is ironically, what will later be interpreted uh, by progressives in the 20th century, uh, which is that the phrase all men created equal is meant to apply to talents, uh, income, uh, your, well, essentially the larger equality of outcome arguments. When it was not, uh, and this is demonstrably true and, and kind of really obvious if you look at the time. Uh, but he, he went on. He had some more flowery words. Uh, for the declaration. So, beginning again, I quote, We now begin to experience the danger of emitting so great an error, to have a place in the declaration of our independence. For a long time it lay dormant, but in the process of time it began to germinate and produce its poisonous fruits. It had a strong hold on the mind of Mr. Jefferson, the author of that document, which caused him to take in an utterly false view of the subordinate relation of the black to the white race in the South, and to hold in consequence that the former, though utterly unqualified to possess liberty, were as fully entitled to both liberty and equality as the latter, and that to deprive them of it was unjust and immoral. To this error, his proposition to exclude slavery from the territory northwest of Ohio may be traced, and to that the Ordinance of 87. So Calhoun is actually drawing a few distinctions here. He's, he's, he's blaming, uh, well, Jefferson uh, for the Declaration of Independence and then blaming the Declaration for the later uh, Ordinance of 1787. So he's acknowledging that the very root principles opposing slavery were enshrined in the Declaration. Now, of course, he's He's relaying this with a type of uh, righteous indignation uh, because he considers these, this whole concept of, of actual human equality to be an error. Uh, and we also see here a very, a, an early introduction of race emerging as a tool of justification for slavery. Uh, 
prior to the 18th century, the concept of race as we understand it today was virtually non-existent, uh, which that is a conversation in and of itself, which we will definitely, uh, definitely explore. Now, so when Calhoun was uh, probably the most influential Democrat at the time, uh, and that is that really requires no no other qualification. Um, he was the architect of the nullification crisis in South Carolina, nearly started the first civil war that way. Uh, and he was a very impassioned and fiery orator for the cause of slavery. Uh, well, I mean, Calhounism wasn't named after him. So one might consider, well, this might have just been the position of the Democratic Party early in its inception. And that's also not true. So, uh, again, following this kind of revisionist system. So Calhoun's attempts to just malign the founding doctrine was not successful. Uh, so later on, if we fast forward to 1860, uh, the presidential debates between uh, Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas, you start to see this, this new interpretation where now Douglas, the Democrat running for president, uh, the Northern Democrat, he argues that, oh, well, no, in fact, these documents were pro-slavery. Oh, and so were the founders. And he's forced to do this as a way to just justify his positions because otherwise they're completely untenable, uh, which is obviously a reflection of the modern-day uh, historical revisionist uh, attempting to uh, malign and destroy the founding principles uh, because otherwise there's no fertile soil for their own ideas to take root. Now, in, uh, in one of these debates, uh, Douglas says, and again, this is Stephen Douglas, not to be confused with the great Frederick Douglas. He says that, I tell you that this Chicago doctrine of Lincoln, declaring that the Negro and the white man are made equal by the Declaration of Independence and by Divine Providence, is a monstrous heresy. The signers of the Declaration of Independence never dreamed of the Negro when they were writing that document. They referred to white men, to men of European birth and European descent, when they declared the equality of all men. Now this is interesting, because in order to hold this position, uh, the individual has to project not just their own ideas, but entire well language that doesn't exist in the document. So we have a continuity of ideas here. So first, Calhoun posits that the black race is inferior uh, and thus to be subjugated to the white race. And Douglas, uh, simply saying white race is insufficient, he specifies Europeans. So this whole concept of white supremacy uh, really turns into European supremacy later on uh, throughout 1860s. But it has, and will, would continue to be, a guiding principle on the Demo in the Democratic Party, first to justify slavery, uh, and then throughout uh, the Reconstruction era to justify political terrorism in the South, and then, of course, to justify Jim Crow and segregation. Now, Lincoln, he responds to this challenge by Douglas, these assertions. Uh, Lincoln, of course, was the first president uh, nominated uh, by the Republican Party. Uh, a party that was founded specifically as an abolitionist party, which ironically was used to insult uh, the Republicans. Uh, in these same debates, Douglas constantly refers to 
uh, Lincoln as the abolitionist or the abolitionist party or the black Republicans. But he decides to answer this, this claim by Mr. Douglas and Lincoln Wright says, I quote, I only have to remark upon this part of the judge's speech, and that too, very briefly, for I should not detain myself or you upon that point for any great length of time, that I believe the entire records of the world, from the date of the Declaration of Independence up to within three years ago, may be searched in vain for one single affirmation from one single man that the Negro is not included in the Declaration of Independence. I think I may defy the judge, Douglas, to show that he ever said so, that Washington ever said so, that any president ever said so, that any member of Congress ever said so, or that any living man upon the whole earth ever said so, until the necessities of the, of the present policy of the Democratic Party in regard to slavery had to invent that affirmation. And that is extraordinarily true. Uh, if anything, Calhoun uh, was the more accurate detractor. He acknowledged the purpose and the intent of the Declaration, uh, and later the Constitution and other acts uh, that worked against slavery, and he viewed that as a negative. Uh, Douglas, and among others, began to selectively omit historical facts and just gently kind of revise the overall story, attempting to be able to force the founding doctrine and the, and the whole symbolic authority of the founders and just compress them to fit into their preformed thesis. Now, on that uh, particular subject, uh, the Declaration of Independence was not meant to bestow upon everybody equal life. And that I mean same house, same car, same income, same uh, opportunities, talents. Uh, Thomas Sowell uh, writes about the kind of the absurdity of this notion. Uh, and he quite brilliantly cites or references that even within groups of individuals within families. There is rampant inequality. Some are taller, some are shorter, faster, stronger, smarter, maybe talented and musically, you name it. Uh, so that's, that's a very kind of, again, kind of recent rereading of it. Uh, Calhoun actually used that whole idea as a straw man argument to try to defeat the principles in the Declaration in order to advance slavery. So it's interesting to note that those who distort and pervert the history of the Declaration did so with, a, with the intent of pushing a political, ideological, or philosophical agenda. Uh, for the Democratic Party, that purpose was the expansion of slavery into new territories and new states, uh, and also trying to uh, coerce federal protections for slavery. But the Declaration itself was universally recognized as a tool against all forms of human bondage. Uh, in fact, it was the United States was the first people or nation ever founded declaring anything close to what the Declaration does. We were the first and only, I believe, potentially still the only nation uh, that, fa that was founded upon the idea of human equality under the law, under nature, and in the sight of God. Uh, no other nation has done that. Uh, so that's where we coined the phrase, of course, American exceptionalism. Uh, it's not a term of arrogance. It's a point of historical fact that the founding of America was, in fact, exceptional to the totality of human history.
So <clears throat> the Declaration at the end of the day, very potent anti-slavery document. And we'll see its influences uh, into the Constitution as well uh, shortly thereafter, which we will cover uh, in the next episode. Uh, and of course, we will in greater detail cover those other elements that we've addressed briefly here, uh, especially Calhounism, and especially the formation and ideological evolutions of the major uh, political parties in America. <laughs>